Josh, I'm taking your stool, so you know. Good. All righty. Uh, good morning and welcome to Redeemer Fellowship. My name's Jonathan, and I'm one of the pastors here. We are continuing in our series in the book of Ephesians. And this week, we're going to be looking at a very familiar passage. You guys heard it read? I'm sure you've heard it before. It's one of those passages that many of us can quote portions of it. I think, though, that sometimes these passages, these really familiar ones, tend to be more difficult than we would even imagine because what we do with familiarity is that we gloss over it, right? Even the old saying, right, familiarity breeds contempt. Not that we have contempt for this passage, but it's so familiar that I think we might miss what God is trying to teach us in it. We know them so well, and as a result of knowing them so well, we miss the depth and beauty contained in some of these familiar texts. But that's the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of God's word is that there is treasure beneath the surface, and that when we take the time to mine that depth, we get those treasures in a way maybe that we've never gotten before. This morning, we're going to see how Paul continues to lift up the church, and we will see how the grace of God brings life and unity to a world filled with death and division. And in so doing, what Paul is getting at is that God is setting his people on a new path, one that consists of good works so that the world might catch a glimpse of what God is like and the wonder of his grace that he pours out upon his people that he just lavishes upon his people. Last week, we finished up chapter one and we caught a glimpse of the beauty and wonder of the church. The passage actually ends in chapter one. It says this in verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church the body of Christ is the fullness of Christ. John Calvin says this, the, the famous reformer. He says, this is the highest honor of the church. This is the highest honor of the church that until he is united to us, the Son of God reckoned himself in some measure imperfect, incomplete. What consolation is it for us to learn that not until we are along with him does he possess all his parts or wishes to be regarded as complete. The church is a mystery and it is, it is a majestic thing. It is a wonderful thing. Just sitting here in this room, we are participants. We are part of the fullness of Christ. When we bend our knee to Jesus, we become the fullness of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at how God gathers his people together, how he calls his people to be the church. So before we jump in, let me pray, and, um, and we'll see what the Lord has for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this wonderful text that you've given us this morning, Lord God. And I pray that as we look into your word, Father, convict us of sin, draw us near to yourself. Make us more and more like your son, Jesus. Conform us into the image of your son so that we might show the world just what you are like, Father. That they might catch a glimpse and that there might be a jealousy so that they would want to know you as well, Father. We love you with all of our heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so walking with the sons of disobedience. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 here and see what's going on. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 really quick. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were dead, is what the Bible says. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. A couple things before we really dive in. Who was dead is the question that we need to ask in this particular verse. Verse 1 says, you were dead. And, and what Paul's doing, he's doing something similar that he did in chapter 1. He's distinguishing between two different groups of people. Paul himself was Jewish. And what he's doing right now, he's talking to a group of Gentiles. He's saying, you, Gentiles, were dead. Most of us in this room are Gentiles. We were all once dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. What does that mean? We walked, we lived. This was the manner of our life. This was our existence. This was the air we breathed was death, right? We inhaled it deeply, right? We drank of it, so much so not even realizing that it was killing us. Every breath we took, right? It's like, it, it's an example. I used to smoke as a kid and, 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 and because I thought it was cool, I was a guitar player and I would, I would put, you know, like I, I thought it was cool, right? Like, and, and the thing is, is that every time you took, a, took, took an inhale of that cigarette, what were you doing? You were killing yourself. You were killing yourself. And maybe there's some of you in this room that smoke and, and, and you know, you're not gonna go to hell for that, but you should quit. It's not good for you, right? Because what it does is, is that every single time it's, it's killing you. And that's kind of what we see happening here. The air we breathed prior to coming into Christ was death. Every single time we took a breath in, we were getting closer and closer and closer to our ultimate demise, death. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked, in which you lived according to or following the age of this world, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. So how did we walk? He tells us, Paul tells us, we walked according to the course of this world or the age of this world, an age that was characterized by death, an age that was characterized by sin, an age that was characterized by everything the enemy wanted it to be, characterized by death. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the one who rules over this dying age that we still currently reside in, this dying age. And who is this prince of the power of the air? Well, he kind of serves as a father figure to whom? The sons of disobedience. It's really interesting. As you look at this text, there's, there's almost this like unholy trinity kind of bubbling over here, right? You have, you have the, the, the father, um, the prince of the power of the air, who's kind of like a father figure. You have this word spirit, which is the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit. But this spirit is the one who indwells those who are on a path of death. So there's a different spirit involved. There's a different father involved. There's different sons involved, right? It's almost like there's a church of the enemy that exists here. The sons of disobedience or the sons and daughters of disobedience. This is what we're dealing with. You were all like this. We were all like this. This was us. This was us. 
the prince of the power of the air. Just a, a couple of things I think are important as we continue traveling through this book is that what Paul is doing, he's tapping into what is known as ancient cosmology, how the world is set up, right? So there's this, there's like the heavenlies, which is the place where God resides, the heavenlies. And then there's the air, which is like kind of a little below. It's part of the heavenlies, but it's not the place where God resides. And that's where the enemy resides. And we saw that even if you look back in chapter one, it says, um, where am I at here? It says then in verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Where? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So you have the heavenly places where God dwells. You have the, where the prince of the power of the air dwells. And then you have the earth, which is where we dwell. But what we're seeing is that there's interaction between these worlds. There's interaction. God interacts with our world. And as we walk with Jesus, we interact with his world. And Satan himself is interacting with our world as well. Right? It even says, right? It says that Satan roams the earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Right? The enemy is real. And Ephesians unpacks spiritual warfare for us. But it's not in the sense, and I think I might have mentioned this the last couple of weeks, it's not the type of battle that we fight, like kind of like, you know, put up your dukes kind of thing. It's not that kind of battle, as we'll see as this passage, as this text, as this book unfolds, that the way we combat the enemy is by living a life of humility in Christ, serving one another. It's how we fight the enemy. It's how we do it. So, so here we are. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the age of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in, son, in the sons of disobedience. In verse 3, he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were there too, Paul says. Paul shifts from you to we, and what he's indicating is that you Gentiles were far from God, but guess what? So were we Jews. You Gentiles were far from God, and so were we, the Jewish people. And so what Paul is doing, he's trying to tell us all, he's trying to say, listen, no one has escaped this age of death. No one has escaped the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. No one has, regardless of where you hail from, right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago that some of us have grown up in Christian families. Some of us can, can point generations back to the amount of people that have walked with Jesus in our families. And guess what? That's great. That's wonderful. You probably have some good habits that you learn from your ancestors. But the reality is, is that every single one of us, regardless of our pedigree, we're breathing in the spirit of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Every single one of us. But this is a radical statement that he's making, right? He's saying, the Jewish people, we are just like you Gentiles. We're just like you Gentiles. And now that probably would have ruffled some feathers for Jewish people because, whoa, I'm not like a Gentile. Absolutely not. But even in our sin, what Jesus is trying to point out, what Paul is trying to point out, excuse me, is that there is a unity in, the, in, the, in, the, in humanity. There's a unity here. We're all, we're all coming from the same place. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of 
God. All of us. Important thing to note as well is that the pronouns being used here, they're all plural. So what is Paul getting at? He's showing us what the church is like and how the church was formed. How the church was formed. Among whom we all once lived. Among whom? Whom? With whom? With the sons of disobedience. With the sons of disobedience. And so I'm thinking of this idea of a path, right? Because he said the sins in which we once walked. And I started thinking, like, how, how does this make sense to me? And I, and I thought, like, a toddler is really a helpful way to make sense of this. Because those of you who've had toddlers, those of you who've been toddlers at one time, um, for some reason, toddlers have a really hard time obeying their parents. Right? They're not good at it. This is not something that they're skilled in. They're learning it, hopefully. But it's not something that, like, they wear a badge of honor. I am obedient. Right? They struggle. Toddlers struggle. But, but I think of it like this, right? What a toddler will do, they'll wander around, right? They'll wander around, they'll run, and they'll just be like happy as like a pig in mud, right? Just smile ear to ear, laughing, doesn't matter where they're going. And they could be laughing and running like straight into the middle of a highway. And they wouldn't even think twice, right? Because they're toddlers. They don't realize that in that street, as they're marching forward, laughing hysterically. They don't know that what's happening in that road is sure death. They don't know. The path they're walking, unbeknownst to them, is a path of death. It's a path of death. And that's the road every single one of us, whether Jew, Gentile, slave, free, women, male or female, we were all walking on a path of death and we didn't even know it. We didn't even know it. We were blind. Some of us were joyfully treading down that path. Some of us struggled down that path. There's no rule that says if you are not a Christian, you will have a hard life. Sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes those who are not Christians have a great life. They have a great life. But they're on a path of certain death. Just like that toddler wandering into the highway. That's what Paul is trying to get us to understand, where we all once stood, where we all once wandered, the air that we all breathed. It was all of us. It was every single one of us. But what happens? What happens? But God. But God. Probably one of the most important phrases in our New Testament, in our Bibles, But God, what what kind of God, right? Who, Who is this God being rich in mercy? He's a God who's rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. His mercy is grounded in his love. So he's a merciful God and that mercy flows from his just, his overwhelming love for his people. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up together with him and seated us together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God, but God, a God who's rich in mercy, A God whose mercy is grounded in his love. A love that existed even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. 
Even when we were wandering from him, even when we were at enmity with God, that love existed for his people. It was there. It never wavered. He loves us. Like, I can't express to you how much God loves you all, individually and corporately as the body of Christ. Those of you might be walking into this room this morning, struggling with some sort of sin, struggling with some sort of, 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 of emotional just like wreck. Like, maybe you're a wreck this morning. Maybe you're broken this morning. Maybe you're struggling with depression, anxiety, whatever the case may be. Whatever it is that you're carrying into this room, God loves you. He loves you passionately. It is who he is. It is part of his existence. It is part of his nature that he loves his people, his creation. It devastates him that this world has gone wrong. Sin devastates God, which is why he sent his son Jesus to remove it, to set the world to rights. That's why he came, because he loves us so much. And he loves his creation so much. He was not willing to sit back and let this world go to hell in a handbasket. Literally, he wasn't wasn't willing to let that happen. He was not okay with this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This is our God. This is our God. I get overwhelmed by this. I get overwhelmed by this. Every time we're singing on a Sunday morning and we, and we sing of the resurrection, I'm reminded, man, God died, but he rose again. He died because of the love he had for his people and for his creation. And he crushed death when he was raised from the dead. I used to say this to my son when we were little. We would talk about what did Jesus do when he rose from the dead? He crushed death. He crushed it to pieces so that no longer it stands as our enemy anymore. And it still has like those, those aftershocks, right? Death still has the aftershocks that exist in this world. But man, it is not our enemy anymore. It is not our enemy. It's been crushed to pieces. And one day we will see the fullness of this when we enter into eternity. One day we will be fully, fully aware that death is dead, that it's been crushed to death on the cross with Jesus, that it was buried in the ground with Jesus, and that when he rose from the dead, it wasn't there no more. It wasn't there anymore. Yes, we still experience in this age, because what's happening in this world is that the age of sin and death and the age to come kind of overlap at this point in life. At this point in history, those two ages are kind of overlapping, where we still have death kind of peeking its way in, but, but life and, and new creation is, is, is entering into this world through, too, as well as people come to faith, as, as, as mouths are feed and, and, and bodies are clothed and the hungry are fed. This is what happens. New creation just keeps on poking its way through, and it happens little by little. This is how the kingdom extends. It's a little by little process. We see this throughout the scriptures that it's, it's always about a remnant, right? It's never like this mass thing. It's, it's this little by little incremental thing that's happening and God is at work and who's he at work through? Us, the people of God, the fullness of him. The fullness of him. Let that sink in for a little bit. 
The fullness of him. We, as we stand here today, as we sit here today, Redeemer Fellowship, we get to be a part of the fullness of him. And how did he do it? How did he do it? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together. How? By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. Saved. Saved from what? Saved from what? From the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience? And saved from that? From the age of death? From the path which leads to death? We've been rescued from all of that. Another word we might pick to use here, by grace you have been liberated, set free from all that was coming upon us. It's our liberation. When Jesus rose from the dead, he liberated his people. He set them free from the previous age of death, from the spirit that is work, at work in the sons of disobedience, from that path that we all once treaded upon, where we were heading towards certain doom, right into the middle of that highway, where that Mack truck was bearing down. That's what we were saved from by grace when Jesus died on a cross and was raised to new life three days later. That's what he saved us from. This is... Wonderful news. The sad part in our, in our culture, right, the word good really doesn't carry any sort of like excitement to it, right? So we got to add to it, right? Like, I mean, God looked at the world. He said he created and it was good. We should be okay with that word, but we've kind of cheapened that word. So we got to think, we got to be creative, right? It's wonderful news. It's overwhelming news. It's mind-blowing news that Jesus rescued us. He rescued us. He rescued us. I mean, this is amazing. That's why, the, that's why the hymn writer sang amazing grace. And we all know what we come from. We all know who we are. We all know the thoughts that flow through our mind on a regular basis. We know how we speak to our spouses, how we treat our spouses, how we speak to our kids, how we deal with our neighbors, how we deal with those who are unlike us. We know who we are. And God is saying, no, I've saved you from that. And we're going to get into that in a, in a few minutes, but he saved us from having to participate in that age. And many of us, we still participate in that age of death. We still participate in it. We tend toward that, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We've sung that before. We're prone to wander, we are. We're prone to participate in the old age. I've said this in the past, that, that when we become Christians, we are saints by identity, but we still speak with the accent of the old age. We still speak with the accent of the old age. And what God is calling us to, he's saying, no, that's not who you are anymore, church. You've been rescued from that. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him together. He made us live, alive together with Christ and he raised us up together with him and he seated us together with him. And, and this is so cool because if you go back into chapter one, 
In verse 19, he says, And what is the immeasurable measurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that, in verse 20, he worked in Christ when he what? Raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Oh my gosh, that's what happens to us. Oh my gosh. Same words. Same words. Only now, he's doing it for the church and he's doing it. It says, and the words here, it says that he, he made us alive together with Christ. It's something that he does together with Christ. He, he raised us up together with Christ and he seated us together with Christ. Where? In the heavenly places. Where is that? Above all power and authority and dominion. We sit with Jesus above the enemy. We sit with Jesus above the enemy. He no longer has authority over us. He no longer has it. So we cannot give it back to him. He's calling us to so much more. And I'm preaching to myself this morning because I know I tend to participate in that old age. I do it. I do it. My thoughts do it. My actions do it. My words do it. And God is saying, you don't have to. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to do that anymore. You've been rescued from that age. You've been rescued from that enslavement, liberated, set free, so that we might walk in newness of life. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus is king and he set us free. If we trust him. If we trust him. If we trust him. The text goes on in verse 7. And every time you see a word like this, if you look down, it says, so that... Those are important words when you're reading your Bible. Because what's happening here is this is, what, this is what people call a purpose clause. He did all this, right? He saved us. He made us alive. He raised us together with him. He seated us together with him. Why? Well, Paul tells us why. So that in the coming ages, and he brings that word up again, ages, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He did this. The chief end of our salvation is so that he can show off his grace. So he can show off his grace. He wants to demonstrate in the coming ages. This does not necessarily mean the future alone. This is from the point that this was written, from the point Jesus rose and ascended into heaven and he was gathering a people unto himself. That means that this whole entire demonstration of his grace is meant to take us through to the end of the age. He wants to show the world the kind of God he is. He wants to show the world the kind of God he is. Remember the toddler who was running into the street that was rescued from oncoming traffic. That child is now brought into the house. His parents hold him close. They tell him how much they love him. They spend time with him. They wrestle with him. They play games with him. They eat ice cream with him. And they do this all with the windows wide open so that all the other kids in the neighborhood could see how much that little boy or that little girl is loved. That's what it means when he wants to show off his grace. He wants the world to see. See that group of people? I love them. And you can be named among them. You can be named among them too. The church exists so that the world can peer over the fence and catch a glimpse at how wonderful God is. 
how much he loves his people, that his grace is unending, that he lavishes it upon his people. This is the grace of God, and he wants the world to know about it. So yeah, that's the purpose of our salvation. That's the main point of our entire text is verse 7. Think about that. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He wants everyone to know. He wants everyone to know. Not in some weird narcissistic way. But he wants everyone to know because he wants to expand this thing. He wants it to keep multiplying and getting bigger and bigger. He wants us to be agents of that multiplication as we live in our communities and and we spend time with our neighbors in our jobs, in school, whatever the case may be, that we might radiate the grace of God to the world around us. Why? Because we are the fullness of Him. We're His hands and feet. We're the means by which he is proclaiming this message of life to the world, by which he is breaking down the powers and principalities that exist, that every time we submit our knee to Jesus, not just in the big sense when we come to faith, but every time we serve those who are without and we come alongside the broken, the desperate, the marginalized, God is crushing to pieces the enemy, that same enemy from back in Genesis 3. He's crushing beneath our feet. Oh my goodness, what a calling this is. What a calling. And God is so gracious that he invites us in on it, that we can share together in the life of Christ by loving him and loving our neighbors. This is is the grace of God. This is what it means. He goes on in the text. He tells us again why he's doing what he does. He says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. Again, that's an important word. These little words, as you're reading your Bibles, just a quick aside, you see a word like that, for, that's telling you that this is, this is a statement that, that's serving as a foundation for what just happened. It's serving as a foundation for what just happened. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, God's grace is the foundation for the entire project, right? And if you weren't sure what grace is, he tells us, right? It is a gift of God. It's not something that we are even able to accomplish on our own. Remember why, right? Because we were dead. We were walking a path of destruction. We were filled with the spirit that is work in the sons of disobedience. We bring absolutely nothing to the table. Nothing. Nothing. I can't stress that enough. We bring nothing to the table of redemption. By sheer grace, it's a gift. And the whole thing's a gift. Right? Scholars debate, well, which part of this sentence is a gift? The whole thing is a gift. Our salvation is a gift. His grace is a gift. Our faith that we exercise, our belief, our bending our knee to Jesus. We don't do that on our own. That's by God's grace. As he breathes new life into his people, we submit ourselves to him. This is a pure gift. 
This is the story of our salvation. Humanity, both Jew and Gentile alike, we were headed toward death. We were breathing the air of the enemy. We were keeping in step with his spirit. Walking the path with the rest of the sons of disobedience. I don't know if any of you guys watch The Walking Dead, and this is not me trying to promote it. That's up to you. Um, but, but what you see in The Walking Dead, Walking Dead is a, is a show about zombies. Um, that's what it's about. It's about zombies. And there are these scenes sometimes where herds of zombies, like, which is so weird, right? Like, that's brilliant. I don't know how they come up with these ideas. But herds of zombies are just walking. Just walking down the street, like, you know, I'm, I can't, I'm not going to pretend to be a zombie. I don't know. I'm not very good at that sort of thing. Um, but, but they always have to, like, figure out a way to get away from the herd. And, and I was thinking about this as I'm studying the text. I'm like, I'm like, oh, this reminds me of The Walking Dead. It's just a herd of dead people just walking. The sons of disobedience. A herd of walking dead. Just walking into destruction. And they will. They'll walk off a cliff. It's like that old video game Lemmings where like they just kind of, anyone ever play Lemmings? No? Wow, okay. <laughs> that didn't work out. Um, but The Walking Dead, let's get back to that. They just, they just wander into destruction. They just wander into destruction. That's what they do. And that's what we were all doing. But by God's grace, he saved us. By God's grace, he saved us. And the beauty of this story is that the division between Jew and Gentile is already being eradicated. The intended goal from the beginning was that Israel would be what? A blessing to the nations. And this plan was hijacked by the enemy, but it was the intended vocation, it was the intended job of Israel. And now, in Christ, it's coming to fruition. It's coming to fruition. And what we'll see next week is that the two are formed into one new man called the people of God, the church. This is, I mean, it's, it's good news. He's just, he's eradicating separation, division. He's saying, no, 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 in my house, in my house, there's no division. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, all of us are in Christ. If you bend your knee to Jesus, if you ask him for your forgiveness, if you repent and change course, Jesus died to forgive you of your sins. His death cleanses us from our sins so that we might walk in newness of life. The passage ends in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Why? That we should walk in them. This idea of walking comes up again. This is what scholars call an inclusio. That means the text is framed by walking. We start off with walking, a different kind of walking, and then we end with walking. But before we jump into the walking, he first says that we are his workmanship. What is he displaying? What is he displaying? He's displaying his work of art. He's displaying his, his masterpiece for the world to see, the church. Right? He's talking about the church. We are his workmanship. So not only are we saved or liberated from our enslavement to sin, death, and the powers, but we are transformed into a masterpiece. Oh, a broken masterpiece, right? I mean, we know. 
the kind of masterpiece this is. I'm reminded, um, when I was a kid, my, my mom had all sorts of like knickknacks around the house and, and like plates on the wall. Like I never understood hanging a plate on the wall, but that's what people do and that's cool. Maybe many of you have plates on the wall and that's wonderful. My mother does, my mother-in-law does. I think most people have plates on the wall. But anyway, this one particular plate, this one particular plate, it fell and it broke. And I think it was an expensive one, although I don't know. Like, I, I'm fine with paper plates, but neither here nor there. But this plate fell, and what my dad did, because he's like a handy guy, he had this old, like, uh, like end table kind of thing, and, and he had some, like, uh, like, mastic that you use for tile and what have you, and he put the pieces together on this bench, on this, whatever, end table, and he made this, like, beautiful mosaic of the plate. It was beautiful, and it, and it still sits in their house now. And it's just, it's such a cool vision that I'm, as I'm studying, I'm thinking about this. I'm like, I'm like, oh, that's, that's the church, right? We're just this, we're a broken mess that God has gathered together to be his masterpiece that he shows off to the world. It's kind of cool. We're his workmanship. And, and I really, I want us to think about that, his workmanship. Just think of work of art. Think of masterpiece. It's a better way to understand that term that he's using there. We are his masterpiece. And what does he say about his masterpiece? We are his workmanship. We were created, new creation, in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. Faith and salvation, every time it shows up in the Bible, we see works following behind it. Saying like, yeah, you're, you're, you're in Christ now? Show me. Show me you're in Christ. I'm not saying that we're saved by those good works. Please, don't get me confused. But, oh, we prove our salvation by our good works. We show the world our salvation by our good works. God is calling us to live a life of good works. But the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing about these good works is whose are they? What does it say? Verse 10, which God prepared. They're God's works. And he just says, how about you get off that path that you were walking, breathing in that toxic air that the sons of disobedience breathe in, and come breathe in the new life of the Spirit and walk in these good works. And you know how you do that? By trusting me, by bending your knee to my son Jesus, by allowing his blood to be the payment for your sins. That's how you do it. So that no longer we're forced to participate in that old age. We're no longer forced to do that. At one time, we were slaves to sin. We were slaves to sin. But now, we are those shattered pieces stitched together, stitched together by God's grace, which he calls the church. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, black and white, male and female, citizen and illegal immigrant, Democrat and Republican, all of us gathered together as the people of God. As the people of God. This is what it means. In all of our brokenness, some of the most unlikely groups of people, under the banner of Jesus, this is the church, and this is his masterpiece that is being shown off to the world, that by faith we have been raised by Jesus. We are no longer named among the sons and daughters of disobedience, but we are named among the sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That is your identity, Redeemer. That is your identity. Everything else is subservient to that identity. You are Christ's. 
You belong to Jesus if you have submitted yourself to him. The wonder of our salvation is the motley crew known as the church. None of us are deserving of God's grace. Yet he lavished it upon us so that we might be shown off to the world around us. This is what it means to be saved. We have been gathered together so that we might live our lives together as agents of grace in this world, performing good works that bring honor and glory to God. And it is then, and only then, will the world be able to catch a glimpse of just what God is like. We cannot continue in the pattern of this world. We cannot continue participating in that old spirit, the one that's at work in the sons of disobedience. We cannot adopt the spirit of this age, but rather we must adopt the life of the new age, the age to come that has come in the person and work of Christ. And this will affect every single part of our lives. Our marriages will look different. How we parent needs to look different. How we manage our finances need to look different. How we use our time needs to look different. We have to stop trying to keep up with the Joneses because the Joneses have nothing we need. They have nothing we need. In fact, it is the Joneses who should be looking at our lives and wondering, what am I missing out on? Jesus is Lord, which means sin and death no longer reign. And the question that needs to be answered is whether or not you have submitted yourself to his lordship. Are you walking in death? Are you living your life according to how the world functions? This age? If so, then chances are you're probably sick and tired of it. Bend your knee to King Jesus that you might participate in the life that he died to provide for you. We cannot allow our world to be hijacked by the enemy. The king is coming back and everything will be set to rights and he is calling us to be a part of that. So as we come to the table this morning, come knowing that when we partake of this bread and the cup, that we are participating in the very thing Jesus accomplished on the cross. But do not eat and drink in vain. This is a table for those who are following Jesus. This does not mean that you said a prayer once. This means you have submitted yourself to the king and that you have repented, changed course. You've committed your life to the sufferings of Christ, sharing in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and that you have locked arms with him in the mission to seek and save the lost. We do this by proclaiming the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is king. And in him we have forgiveness of sin and also coming alongside the broken, whether that is the poor in our midst and in our communities, broken marriages, those grieving the loss of the loved ones, those who have sinned in such a way that they bear scars, scars that others are fearful of embracing. This is what it means when we say that this table is for followers of Jesus. It's for those who have embraced, embraced the sufferings of Christ, knowing full well that glory awaits. It's not a table for the perfect. It's a table for the faithful in Christ, the forgiven in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your son, Jesus, the good news of your son, Jesus, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, that he's seated at your right hand and that we are seated with him above all powers and authority and those who have dominion, Father. We are with him in the heavenly places. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would share in his life, Lord, that we would love you with all of our hearts, 
and that we would love others. Father, you are good. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your salvation, Lord. Thank you for rescuing us from the age of death, sin. Lord, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.